Exploring the Word is brought to you by Reclaiming America for Christ and the Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. This is Pastor Paul Blair. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Exploring the Word. Today we're going to be presenting a message that I had preached on one of the high holy days that God talks about in Scripture. We know it as Pentecost. The Jews knew it as the counting of the Omer or Shavuot, 50 days after the resurrection, to commemorate God's giving of the law at Mount Sinai, to celebrate the grain harvest, and of course we know the birth of the church. I hope that you enjoy today's beginning of a two-part presentation on Pentecost. We welcome you to the radio ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We invite you to join with us for today's Exploring the Word. Here's Pastor Paul Blair. Acts chapter 2, let's read in verse 32. And this Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this which you now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom you have crucified, both Lord and the Messiah. And when they heard this, they were convicted in their heart. They said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. Verse 41, And they that gladly received this word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Fifty-three days earlier. It had been the darkest day this group had ever known. It was on that day, on the eve of Passover, that Jesus had been crucified. Early in that morning, the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, stood before the throng of Jewish people in the court of the Gentiles there at the temple, likely on the precipice that you see on the screen of Antonio Fortress, overlooking the temple court with the murderer Barabbas on one side and with Jesus on the other. Pilate said, Whom should I release unto you as a show of goodwill as I customarily do on your feast of Pesach? Should I release Barabbas, the murderer, or Jesus, whom some of you call the Messiah? And scripture tells us that the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership, prompted the people to cry out, Release Barabbas, crucify Jesus. And even the high priest made the statement as recorded in John, we have no king but Caesar. Well, now it was Pentecost, this special summer feast that celebrates the grain harvest. You have the first three feasts, Pesach, the Feast of first fruits, and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, back to back to back in the spring. Then in the fall, 
You have Rosh Hashanah, the civil new year. You have the Day of Atonement, that one day on the 10th when the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and offer blood on the mercy seat. And then the Feast of Tabernacles, celebrating God's provision. This represents the type of Christ's first coming. This represents a type of Christ's second coming. In the middle, you have this unusual feast, this summer feast called Shavuot. Sheva meaning seven in the Hebrew, Ot being the feminine plural. You put it together and it's seven times seven of weeks or 49 plus one, 50 days, a counting from the Feast of first fruits until this unusual summer feast. Again, commemorated the grain harvest and also commemorated when, when Moses received the law that first Pentecost at Mount Sinai. Well, Luke tells us that Jesus had spent 40 days with His disciples teaching them and showing them by many infallible proofs that He was, in fact, risen from the dead. Then He took them across the Kidron Valley, up on the Mount of Olives, and just before He ascended, He reminded them as Dan preached on. By the way, I thought last Sunday was one of the best sermons I have ever heard. I thought Dan lit it up. He rang the bell. I was about to jump up and start dancing. Yeah, Fisher's clapping. I was about to jump up and do a charismatic hoot nanny over here because it was so good. But as he said, you know, when Jesus, the disciples, one of the questions they asked, Lord, is it now? Now? Now you've been true? Now are you going to establish your kingdom on earth? He didn't say, oh, no, no, no. That was all allegorical. He didn't say, oh, no, no, no. All of those promises will be fulfilled by the church. He said this. It's not your business to know when. Here's what your instructions are. You're to go across Kedron Valley and wait for the falling of the Holy Spirit. When you receive the Holy Spirit, you will bear witness. You will testify of me. First in Jerusalem and Judea, then in Samaria, and then under the Goyim, all the Gentile nations to the uttermost extent of the world. So they did exactly what Jesus commanded. They went back into Jerusalem, and they waited for the Holy Spirit. They prayed in fellowship, perhaps in the same upper room where they had partaken of that last supper with Jesus. By the way, here's the Temple Mount, Golden Dome of the Rock sets here, Alaska Mosque here. It would have been here that Solomon's temple sat, approximately in this area. And we see this is a view from the Mount of Olives. This is the Kidron Valley. This is the Hinnom Valley back over here. This outside the Lion's Gate of St. Stephanus Church. Some believe that that's where Stephen was martyred. There's argument for the other side as well. However, they have built this church here. Down over on this side on the slope of Olivet would be the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus would have been arrested. And again, up here, you see that building right there is recognized inside there as David's tomb still to this day. And then just adjacent to it is what is known historically as the upper room. This floor actually would have been original. Everything on top of that would have been new. But it's believed that this may have been the place. By the way, Caiaphas's house is right down, right there over here. So the last night Jesus would have been uh, in prison there and, you know, the mock trial and everything would have begun there. But it's believed that that, that is the location of the upper room. Nevertheless, there they were awaiting this, this promised filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember in Judaism and in, throughout the Old Testament, actually, uh, prophecy is pattern. And we saw that 
and Passover. Christ was the fulfillment of all the patterns. On the 10th of Nisan, the lamb without spot and blemish was staked out for observation to be observed for four days that he was, in fact, the lamb without spot and blemish. Then on the 10th of Nisan, that lamb was taken and slain in the afternoon at even, the Bible says, at about 3 o'clock. And, of course, that first Passover, the blood was placed on the doorposts, and, of course, the death angel and judgment passed over. Well, we see that that is a type of Christ. Christ is the fulfillment. By the way, it wasn't Palm Sunday. Even the Jews call it Shabbatim Hagadel, the great Sabbath, was the 10th of Nisan. The great Sabbath was when Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. I hate to argue with tradition, but when tradition's wrong, you can either be right or you can be wrong. That's everybody's choice. But on the 10th of Nisan, Jesus made his triumphal entry, announcing that he was the Lamb of God. He was tested for four days as he came in the next day, drove the money changers out of the temple, and then healed, the Bible says, great multitudes. Then the next days, he answered the questions of the lawyers, the Herodians, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, finally preached that that sermon in, in Matthew 23, said, I'm finished with you. I'm gone next time you see me. It's going to be when I come back in power and glory, went across, gave the Olivet Discourse from on top of Olivet, looking back over the temple. The next day, on the 14th, he was, he was crucified at 9 in the morning, and he gave up his, he dismissed his spirit about 3 in the afternoon. Perfect type antitype. Do you understand what, is, what I'm talking about, what Dan's talking about when we talk about prophecy being types and patterns? I can go through this again. No, no, no. We want to be out on time, don't we? Well, some 1,600 years earlier, 50 days after that first Passover, Moses and the Israelites were encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai when God entered into the covenant with Israel. And it was marked by the sound of a shofar from heaven. And Exodus tells us that they heard that shofar and they saw thunderings. That's an unusual statement because normally you hear thunder. You see lightning, but they saw thunderings. Now, here was Peter and the 120 waiting in unity and one accord. And the day of Pentecost was fully come. As I said a while ago, it's called the counting of the Omer. They count 50 days. And then it's Pentecost. Well, Pentecost was come. It was the day. And the Bible says there was a sound as of a rushing wind. Now, folks, every Bible teacher I've ever heard, including me up until about five years ago, used to use this imagery. Can you imagine the sound of an F5 tornado? But that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't fit any type or pattern in the Old Testament. Plus, let me ask you a question. We live in Oklahoma. What do you do when you hear the sound of an F5 tornado? Do you gather in the middle of City Hall at the town square? Or do you run for cover and go underground? Well, of course. Why in the world, if there was a sound of an F5 tornado, would people want to become, come to assemble at the court of the Gentiles in the temple? Of course that wouldn't have happened. They would have run for cover. As a matter of fact, as I looked at this and analyzed it, I came to a conclusion. I sent it to a friend of mine that's an expert in the Greek language and had him examine my, my crazy theory, and he agreed with me. So the actual Greek language could say, and I would say should be translated, there was a blaring from heaven which was carried by a violent blowing. 
Now, folks, I'm convinced that they didn't hear the normal priestly shofar that would have been blowing in the temple court that day, calling them to assembly. Uh, in Exodus 19:19, they heard the shofar from heaven there at Mount Sinai, and I think that's exactly what they heard here. I think they heard this shofar from heaven, and they came and assembled at Sinai, knowing, or excuse me, on the Temple Mount, knowing that something was different. And Exodus says that the people saw thunderings. Well, now, here at Pentecost, they saw tongues of fire above the heads of the believers. Now, remember, in the wilderness, the pillar of fire stood above the tabernacle, above the Holy of Holies, and it was a sign uh, representing God's indwelling presence. Well, now, God indwelt every believer. And they began to speak as the Holy Spirit gave them utterance. Well, what did they speak? Well, verse 11 tells us they spoke of the wonderful works of God. What were they doing? They were evangelizing. The miracle was not speaking in some prayer language or some gibberish that couldn't be understood. Again, there's no pattern anywhere in the Old Testament of nonsense being uttered, a type and anti-type example. Quite the contrary. What they were doing here is they were speaking, and everyone from around the world understood. Understand that Jews from all over the world who spoke every language of the world, as Dan tied it together, connecting this to Babel, it was a beautiful point, brother. Jews from all over the world were back in Jerusalem at this required high holy day, and every man heard these uneducated, redneck fishermen from Galilee speak of the wonderful works of God in their own language and in their own dialect. That was a miracle. And Acts 2 records the transcript of Peter's sermon. He went through the Tanakh, the, what we call the Old Testament, showing how Jesus of Nazareth actually fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah. Peter first explained that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit was foretold by the prophet Joel, some of which was fulfilled then, some of which we will see fulfilled at the coming great and terrible day of the Lord, otherwise known as the tribulation. Then he explained that the crucifixion of Jesus was actually in accordance to God's own will as the Lamb of God was paying for the sins of of man and he came to take away the sin of the world. Then he continued quoting from the, the Tanakh that the death could not hold Jesus and explaining that David prophesied of the Messiah's resurrection in the 16th Psalm, not his own. He said, as a matter of fact, Peter, I'm sure, would have, would have pointed, as I showed you in that picture, I, I imagine he would have been there in the temple court and he pointed back over to David's tomb saying, we know David's not talking about himself. His tomb's over there. We all pass by it every day. We all know that David's still in it. David was talking about the Messiah. And, and he's at the Father's right hand until his enemies will be made his footstool. And then Peter continued, This same Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified 50 days ago. Boy, I imagine he had a finger on him, much like Nathan. Boy, and he wasn't politically correct. He said, This same Jesus of Nazareth, whom you, imagine a hand on the hip, whom you crucified 50 days ago, has come. He's come out of the grave. We all know it. As a matter of fact, Paul tells us that some 500 different people had personally seen the resurrected Christ. And Peter says, this same Jesus is both Lord and the Messiah, and He has ascended to the right hand of the Father in heaven. Now, ladies and gentlemen, remember, 
It was these same people standing in this same place 50 days earlier that shouted in unison, crucify Jesus, release Barabbas. We'll have no king but Caesar. Yet now they fell on their knees and cried out, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. Change. Change direction from unbelief to belief. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Now, we lock up on that. But understand, for a Jew, this is understood. When you completed a section of study, or if you were to become a proselyte from being a Gentile into Judaism, your last official public act to tell the world that you are now a a practicer of Judaism, or you had completed a section of study, or you were beginning a new life as going through your bar mitzvah, or entering into the priesthood, or getting married. These were all times where you would be born again, so to speak. Well, you know what? When you came to faith and you trusted Christ as your Messiah, by the way, this was a mikvah, a baptismal area in Qumran, there in the southern half of Israel. But notice there's two sets of stairs, because you came in one way, You were fully immersed. You came out of the water, born again, but you left different. Do you understand the type? Do you understand the imagery? And the Jews also built always staggered steps. As you go up to the temple, you'll see the same thing. You don't know why? So you would have to have your head bowed in reverence as you approached the uh, the holiness of God. Because you couldn't, the steps weren't all unique or alike. So you could just go down them blindly. You had to watch your step. But the imagery, coming in one way, born again, changed another. So they said, repent. That's salvation. Now you Jews publicly testify of this. Well, that was bold. They're right there in the center of Jerusalem with the Sanhedrin there standing watching. And 3,000 made public professions of faith that day, trusting in Jesus as the Lamb of God and their Savior and King. By the way, this is the pool of Siloam. It is believed that there were so many to be baptized that day that because of the sheer numbers, plus we know this historically, during the holy days, they would use Siloam as a giant mikvah. So it's likely they would have come down these stairs of ascent and gone to the pool of Siloam and were baptized. This is, this is underground, but these are those stairs of ascent that Jesus would have walked up. These are the steps leading down. They have finally discovered the pool of Siloam. But understand, 3,000 people saved. 50 days later, it was those same people in that same place that said, we'll have no king but Caesar. But here's Peter, preaches this message, and 3,000 are born again. What changed? Was it Peter's connecting the dots in the Old Testament? Partially. Yet we use the same Scripture with our Hebrew friends today with little success. For every logical connection of the dots we make, they will either deny or object or or do something. Well, why didn't these 3,000 do the same? In fact, all they had to do was just to go outside the temple a little while north there to a particular garden tomb, roll back the stone, and pull out Jesus' dead body, and they could have killed the birth of Christianity right there because it all rested on the fact that Jesus said, three days after I go in, I'm coming out, and you're not going to be able to find me unless you're one of mine. 
They could have very easily said, hey, Peter, you're lying. Here, let's go outside the temple and check. And gone up there, and they could have settled this once and for all. So why didn't they? Folks, you know why. There it is. The reason they couldn't do that as a defense is because the tomb was empty. Now, folks, if you are a Christian, this doesn't, it's not earth-shattering to you. And if you have grown up in a Christian home, likely you have been taught this and you have believed this great miracle because your parents believed it or because the Bible said so. But you know, there are folks out there that say, oh, well, that's just in the Bible. I'm not going to believe anything in the Bible. That's just another one of those Bible stories that the followers of Jesus put in there uh, after he was dead. Well, let's see what the world actually has to say about this. Just about a hundred years after these events that we just talked about, there was a first century Christian named Justin Martyr who lived in Ephesus. He had been a philosopher. He had studied all sorts of areas of philosophy, including Plato. But finally, he was led by the evidence to Christianity, and he became a devoted Christian. Well, there was a Jew named Trypho that had recently come to Ephesus fleeing Judea. And Justin Martyr recorded, or recorded his debates with Trypho and collected it in what is now called the Dialogue with Trypho. Well, in chapter 108, he recorded a passage from a letter circulating amongst the Jewish community about Jesus' tomb, which said this. This is what the Jews said. We crucified him. But his disciples stole him by night from the tomb where he was laid when unfastened from the cross and now deceive men by asserting that he has risen from the dead and ascended to heaven. Well, you say, Pastor, what's the big deal? That's exactly what Matthew said. The disciples stole his body. Well, yes, that is what Matthew said. The Jews came and said, hey, we'll pay you money. Say the disciples stole his body. But recognize this, according to this extra-biblical document dated 1,900 years ago, the Jews admitted that the tomb really was empty. hundred years after the resurrection of Christ, the rumor that was being forcibly spread throughout the Jewish community was that you tell everybody that the disciples stole his body. He is not the Messiah. But again, the point is the Jews, they weren't on Christ's side. Now, by the way, let me, let me talk to you. Let me, de- let me defuse some anti-Semitism. Jesus was a Jew. All the disciples were Jewish. Christianity was 100% Jewish for probably the first decade after the resurrection. When I say the Jews, what I'm referencing is the Sanhedrin primarily. The council of Israel, the leadership of Israel, the high priest. There were, heavens, there were 3,000 Jews that were followers of Jesus here at Pentecost. So when I say the Jews persecuted or the Jews did this, or that, that was the official position coming from the Sanhedrin and spread throughout the synagogues amongst the rabbis. But the point is this. Their argument was, no, 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 that never happened. They knew the body was gone. That's a fact of history. They couldn't deny it. All they could do was come up with some alternative theory to try to confuse you and throw you off the track. Now, there's another historical work called the Toledot Yeshu, or the Chronicles of Jesus, 
records the Jewish traditions that they had made up concerning Jesus because they tried to discredit him, obviously, as best they could, uh, especially in that first century or two. Actually, it even increased for centuries as there became fierce anti-Semitism among early Christianity. And folks, that is a shame. That is a shame. The gospel came first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. We must be very sensitive. We want to see Jews. In fact, I'll, it shouldn't be this way. I, I really get doubly excited when I get to see a Jew born again. To me, that's just a completed Jew. They're Jews that actually recognize who their Messiah is, and they, they recognize it now. But anyway, they made up different stories. They, they said that Jesus was the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier, and he used black magic and false miracles. Now, understand this. They also admit that he worked miracles. That's a historical record. The Jews said, yeah, he worked miracles. We can't deny that. But he used black magic. It was sorcery. So anyway, in this Toledot Yeshu, hey, Jesus was actually the illegitimate son of a Roman soldier. He fooled the masses with magic and miracles. He eventually was crucified. And then under a discussion about his death, the following paragraph says this, diligent search was made and Jesus was not found in the grave where he had been buried. A gardener had taken him from the grave and brought him into the garden and buried him in the sand over which waters flowed into the garden. So this Jewish ancient tradition claims that a gardener stole Jesus' body. But again, what does it also admit? The Jews admit again. What? The tomb was empty. Now, folks, let me tell you why this is so exciting. As you get older, or if you walk into the doctor's office and the doctor says, uh, Mr. Blair, you've got cancer. That is the point in your walk in life where you really come face to face with, Do what I, is what I believe really real? Oh, it's easy to make that profession, then go out and go drinking when you're in college or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a member of a church. But when you've been said, hey, you may be dead in 30 days, then you're going, boy, am I really, 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 really ready? Am I sure that what I believe to be true is really correct? That's why I get excited about this stuff. That's why it's so important as we minister, we get in our Bibles as we get older. Hey, it's easy to say, I believe, but when it comes... Well, as the cowboys say, when it's nut cutting time, you want to make sure that you're righter than right, buddy. So that's why I get real excited about this stuff. Because, folks, this is exciting when you find out that all the evidence, whether it's scientific and you're arguing evolutionary theory, or whether it's historical, or whether it's archaeological, everything they find points to the Bible and says it's true. Boy, that is exciting. Let me give you one more example. In 1878, a marble slab was discovered in, of all places, Nazareth. Wound up being ignored for nearly three decades before it was sold to the Paris National Library and wound up in the Louvre. It's an edict that arguably, but quite frankly, I'm convinced, and many others are, was issued by the Roman Caesar, Emperor Claudius. 
We hope that you enjoyed today's edition of Exploring the Word, and we look forward to being with you next time as we complete this message on Pentecost. Until then, may God bless you. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond. We hope that today's journey in God's Word has been a blessing to you. You can find more sermons and resources at our church's website, www.fairviewbaptistedmond.org or call 405-348-1745. Join us again each weekday for Exploring the Word from Fairview Baptist Church in Edmond.